Good day to you, and welcome to Fascinating. I'm your host, Rick, from Planet Vulcan. My continuing mission on planet Earth to search for signs of intelligence and to encourage its spread. Yet another fascinating meme among Earthlings that has come to my attention is the idea of a moral landscape. Earthling author and podcaster Sam Harris wrote a book with that title a few years back. The idea behind this meme is that by means of intentional intervention and authoritarian regulation, the moral landscape, which is defined as the totality of all possible social outcomes, can be navigated in such a way as to increase general well-being, and that we know what well-being is and can in principle measure it. Contributing editor Slancha Nazdorovia submits the following essay, which evaluates this highly influential idea in light of evolutionary thinking. This essay will be the first part, and it will be followed shortly by an essay that profiles Harris's discussion with Eric Hoel, a fellow neuroscientist and philosopher. Slauncher writes, The meme of the moral landscape is based on the philosophy of utilitarianism as originally laid out by the Englishman Jeremy Bentham, and as adopted and expanded by many others since. It has become pretty much the dominant theme in moral philosophy in this present age. Bentham's family were long-standing members of the British ruling class, so it shouldn't be too surprising that Bentham framed all of his ideas in terms of how governments could shape outcomes in such a way as to further what he regarded as the goals of the Enlightenment. Jeremy Bentham's best-known phrase is, It is the greatest happiness of the greatest number that is the measure of right and wrong. This phrase sounds good. Who could possibly object to improvements in happiness for more and more people? But it has in practice proven to be problematical, and it has led to the weaving of Gordian knots, in which one what-if follows another forever in an unresolvable debate. Let's begin by pointing out that Bentham's prescriptive phrase is without any definite meaning that you can actually pin down in theory or in practice. Most people who use the phrase do not seem even to be aware of this flaw in reasoning, probably due to an unfamiliarity with mathematics. But it doesn't take much effort to understand why there is a flaw if you simply create an illustrative example or two. If you are of a mathematical bent, you no doubt already see that Bentham's famous specification just does not create a meaningful and unambiguous objective function. To illustrate, let's say that you're faced with a decision about which proposed policy is better and which proposed policy is worse because you cannot do both, and you try to make your choice based on a formulation of the greatest good for the greatest number. Let's say policy A increases the amount of well-being for those who receive a benefit, but reduces the number of people who will benefit. And policy B increases the number of people who will benefit, but reduces the amount of benefit each one will receive. For example, policy A might impose rent control, 
which would benefit those who are already occupying a rented dwelling, but which would incentivize the removal of rental units from the market. Policy B would create a lot of public housing, but if the history of public housing projects is any guide, would condemn the occupants to a substandard life. Can you see that a consequentialist calculus without introducing additional arbitrary assumptions cannot provide a method for choosing between policies A and B? The morally superior policy is defined as the one that provides the greater total well-being, but there is no natural way to calculate total well-being. How do you determine whether expanding the reach of the policy increases total well-being if it reduces the well-being of some of the people? How do you determine whether increasing the well-being of some of the people increases total well-being if it reduces the number of people who will benefit? There is simply no objective metric you can calculate. Of course, if policy A increases the well-being of everyone and also extends the benefit to more people and policy B does not, you will unambiguously increase total well-being, at least in the case your good intentions lead to the results you desire. But if policy A decreases the well-being of even one person, then you cannot be certain that this one person's loss of well-being does not outweigh all of the gains. The converse is, of course, also true. Philosophers and politicians have been wrestling with the utilitarian ideal ever since Bentham and have been so enamored of this ideal of morality that even the relative few who are aware of its conceptual flaw do not want to give it up. They speak of navigating the moral landscape, whereby directed collective action we can ascend peaks of societal well-being by implementing policies that are intended to produce such ends. They claim further that all moral choices must be considered in light of the foreseeable consequences of actions. But without a more meaningful principle upon which to base actions, you are left only with feelings and intuitions about how to do social engineering. And in today's world, those who are doing the feeling and the intuiting are more often than not in the grip of one or more profound acnorongis. And that doesn't even include those who simply enjoy the exercise of authority and do not honestly care about general well-being. If you are not acquainted with the term acnorongi, it is ignorance spelled backwards and refers to knowing things that aren't so, as opposed to ignorance refers, which refers to not knowing things that are so. Consider, for example, those who believe that they are instrumental in carrying out a divine plan that no one can contest, because to do so would be to oppose the will of God. Or those who are convinced that all of human history can be explained in terms of struggles between social classes. This belief is presented and accepted as dogma, in some circles, and those who challenge this belief are dismissed as heretics. Or those who still cling to a labor theory of value. Or those who believe that property is theft. Or those who believe that an economic system can be intelligently designed. 
or those who are stuck in zero-sum thinking. Let us remark in passing that much good has come from the efforts of those who subscribed to Bentham's motto. Bentham and his followers have been instrumental in such movements as free expression, the rights of women, abolition of slavery, and the elimination of cruelty towards criminals and animals. These policies are a good thing under other views of morality besides the utilitarian view. And I am arguing that a view of morality that focuses on means rather than ends is a more sophisticated view of morality. One movement that does rely on the idea of maximizing social well-being is welfareism, which is based on the idea that taking from the better off and transferring benefits to worse off increases total well-being, a proposition that is widely accepted in today's world and one that provides strong enough motivation that those doing the transferring have convinced themselves that they are not in truth stealing from a class of victims, saying of the victims they can afford it. But even if it's true that an extra dollar generally means more to a poor person than a rich person, there is more to the issue than that. When you normalize theft, you damage the fabric of society, even if you do it democratically. Think, for example, of the effect of making exceptions of the rules of right-of-way on city streets and exempt a favored class of drivers from the observance of red lights. It should come as no surprise to this podcast's listeners that all of our contributing editors, with the exception of Smirky McSmugface, are critical of social engineering in general. Social engineering traditionally involves a focus on outcomes rather than a focus on means and a reliance on intended outcomes as a measure of morality, rather than on a fair rule of behavior with no double standards allowed, means in practice these engineering attempts are going to ride roughshod over individual rights. Smirky, though, has signed on to the idea that we can ignore the intractability of social engineering and resolve all dilemmas by declaring certain groups to be enemies of the people after which there is no need to consider the effect of policy on them. A sizable minority of people agree with Ms. Max Mugface. The rest of us believe that we should just jettison the idea that an idealized peak in a moral landscape towards which we can collectively move can be a useful guide to moral action. The idea that we can intentionally navigate the moral landscape is intelligent design thinking at its worst. Our actual place on the moral landscape is the result of evolutionary processes based on the inconceivable and ultimately uncontrollable myriad actions of all people. Where we are on the moral landscape is a clear example of a spontaneous and continually evolving social construct. We can cut through the knots woven by utilitarian thinking if we base morality on the right of everyone to do as they wish with what belongs to them. Using this approach, we are able to choose means that are just, and evolutionary processes will then move us to our place on the moral landscape 
as a result of the consequent energy flows through the system, as they do in any case, even when we delude ourselves into thinking we are doing engineering and construction. What we are actually doing, more often than not, is throwing monkey wrenches into the works, works of which so many of us have so little understanding. Please note that the definition of freedom expressed here is slightly but profoundly different from the usual definition of freedom, which is usually formulated metaphorically by saying such things as my right to move my hand freely ends at your face, which brings an unwelcome and unnecessary consequentialism into the definition of freedom. I plan to go more into the deep implications of adding the belonging concept in part two of this essay. Under the old, usual definition of freedom, you are obliged to consider in its specifics the consequences of your exercise of freedom if you wish to be a moral person. But doing this usually gets you bogged down in the creation of a Gordian knot, impossible to unsnarl and impeding progress. Think, for example, of the famous hypothetical proposed by the prominent Australian moral philosopher Peter Singer. Singer asks, What would you do if, while walking, you came upon a pond in which a child was struggling to escape from drowning? Using this as a jumping-off point, you can imagine a multitude of hypothetical actions you might take to fulfill what Singer regards as a moral obligation and then try to choose the one that most effectively fulfills the obligation. Now, most people possess evolved benevolent instincts which inspire their actions. So the likely response of most people to Singer's hypothetical is that they would attempt to save the child from drowning as long as they could do so without running a mortal risk themselves. But what if you were wearing expensive clothing? Under a utilitarian calculus, would it not be better to let the child drown instead of ruining your clothes if you could sell the clothes and then use the money to save two children? Or what if there were more than one child in danger of drowning and you could not save them all? What if one of them were your own child? What if one of them were better looking than the others? What if one of them were disabled? Or what if... In your attempt to save a drowning child, you yourself unexpectedly perish, when if you had not made the attempt, you would have gone on to earn huge sums of money that you would have used to save the lives of hundreds of children. And so on, through open-ended what-ifs, as many as you wish to imagine. Clearly, it does not take long to arrive at decision paralysis. And I am arguing that the root cause of the paralysis is the blanket acceptance of responsibility for meeting other people's needs. We can cut this knot by agreeing that there is no moral obligation here. We are on a slippery slope if we say that need constitutes a claim. We ought to agree that you have no moral obligations beyond a dedication to fair play, that is, the golden rule and as a mature adult, the acceptance of responsibility for your own existence. Any action you wish to take on behalf of others, beyond living up to this fundamental morality, should come under the heading of benevolence, not duty. Snip, snip.
At this point, you might wish to visit or revisit the essay by my colleague Mahalo Kumela on the subject of property, published in section 2, and the way that it fits in with the evolutionary thinking that most of our contributing editors wish to promote. In a nutshell, Mahalo's essay demonstrates how you can gain some understanding of how definition and assignment of property rights works to guide the flows of energy in a way that keep things organized and functioning, in the same way that the definition and assignment of -of right-of-way on a motorway functions to keep traffic flows organized and functioning. So can you be a moral person if you do not participate in charitable efforts aimed at helping those in distress? The answer is yes. Morality does not require you to give away that which you have legitimately acquired. It only requires you to acquire things legitimately. What you do with your earnings is your business and yours alone, and you may spend your earnings on whatever pleases you, which for most of us includes acts of benevolence. And it is hugely important to understand that if you are participating in productive activity and creating value in the world, so that you are at least supporting yourself, you are already helping others who are benefiting from the value you are creating when you produce. And you are doing so more effectively than those who are willing to be so generous, usually with other people's money. Just look at the immense improvements in the lives of Earth's people during the last few centuries. These improvements did not come about because of charity. They came about through the evolution of market economies, which are based on the rule of law and respect for life, liberty, and property. Coupled with the scientific discoveries and technological innovations that are the hallmark of the Enlightenment era. In other words, undirected cultural evolution has done and continues to do more to increase general well-being by orders of magnitude than the efforts of well-intentioned, would-be moral landscape navigators have ever done or ever will do. Just note how common it is for aid programs to end up doing more harm than good. For example, when funds are provided to leaders in third world countries. Receiving funds from foreigners relieves these leaders of accountability to their own people, and with depressing regularity, they then go on to create oppressive regimes while living in luxury that would make Louis XIV blush. Or how common has it been for the aid that actually does reach needy people to end up undermining and preempting the evolution of a productive economy. A final word about Harris's take on benevolence. Don't get me wrong. I respect and admire Harris because he is both good-hearted and intelligent, and I believe his efforts are, on balance, increasing societal well-being. He has an unusual facility in creating examples to illustrate his ideas and he has a quick and delightful wit. But he takes all the fun out of benevolence, which ought to give benevolent people the good feeling that nature has sculpted us to feel when we help those who deserve our help. 
and replaces the good feelings with dreary duties and onerous obligations. By his lights we are supposed to feel guilty if we are not benevolent. And he does not hesitate to label people who are not as selfish. As if sticking the selfish label on someone is some sort of argument-ending knockout blow. But a rare and beautiful bright spot in modern thinking is that many psychologists are now beginning to agree that there is such a thing as healthy selfishness. And particularly in the literature on raising children, there is a growing awareness that a blanket condemnation of selfishness is not doing anybody any good. For example, I invite you to have a look at Janet Lansbury's book, No Bad Kids, Toddler Discipline Without Shame. I also invite you to listen to the Season 1 podcast titled Mine, written by my colleague Bitte Bienvenu, for a thoughtful discussion of dealing with selfishness when it manifests in children of all ages. In Part 2 of this essay, I plan to examine some of Harris's ideas about the moral landscape more deeply, and I will present excerpts from Harris's podcast when he and fellow neuroscientist and philosopher Eric Hull weave utilitarian knots and demonstrate how I would cut these knots. Many thanks, Nislancha, for this essay. I invite you to have a listen to the next installment of Fascinating. Please provide feedback to these podcasts if you are so inclined. You may contact me by sending an email to Senior Contributing Editor Prego Denada. Pregodenada at gmail.com. Theme music, Coming Back to Life, with thanks to Pink Floyd. Live long and prosper. Savor your experiences and treasure your memories. And respect nature's wisdom.